0: Hi, welcome to another episode of Emacs Chat. I'm Sasha Chua, and today we have Steve Purcell, who is, among other things, one of the, uh, one of the maintainers of Melpa um, and the writer of like, a really, really popular Emacs configuration. There are, like a thousand plus stars in that thing. Uh, so, uh, hi, Steve. Uh, thanks for, thanks right. for joining.
1: Thank you, Sasha. I'm very happy to be here.
0: Okay, so before we jump into all things Emacs, I usually like asking people what what their life outside Emacs is. Kind of like show that we actually have a life outside Emacs. And it's um, a little hard to imagine that you have one considering how prolific you are on GitHub. <laughs> but uh, tell, tell us a little bit about who you are outside Emacs.
1: Um, well, I'm... Uh... Uh, software professional, basically, uh, 20 years or so in the industry. But these days, I work as a, a solo entrepreneur, so I'm I'm on on entirely my own schedule. Uh, I work from home, and uh, that's what gives me a lot of freedom to dip in and help out with open source bits here and there. And and honestly, I probably spend a little bit too much time on it. But since I don't have a boss, I can't really get into trouble. <laughs>
0: And based on your Emacs configuration, you work with a lot of different languages. So uh, do you want to rattle off a couple of things that you work on, or do I just like start going through your Lisp directory? And...
1: <laughs> <laughs> no, um, I mean, I... I, I've been through all, all sorts of um, language environments in the past because you know, when I started off as a professional, I was doing lots of C, C++, and Perl, and then I got into Python and uh, lots of Java, then later Ruby, Common Lisp, Pascal, um, all sorts of different things. So, so my configuration really um, has a lot of stuff that I don't necessarily actively use. Um, for my work at the moment, but that I still dip into from time to time and I'm, I'm still mm-hmm. familiar with.
0: So what do you tend um, to do a lot of these days?
1: Um, I, uh, the, the, the business that supports me for the most part is, um, is built on Rails still, um, much as I'd like to change it. So a lot of the work that I do at the moment is, uh, is Ruby and Rails and uh, i've also been doing Clojure and and Haskell quite a lot in the last few years um, mm-hmm. so it's it's mainly concentrated around there but probably um yeah that, that's not really evident in the in the open source stuff that I put out because almost everything open source that I do these days is uh, is elisp or at least the Elisp part of it dwarfs everything else
0: mm. uh, you you were just telling me how you've you've Kind of forked about six hundred repositories and sent little patches over to them. So that's incredible. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
1: So, so I, I have about six hundred about six hundred repositories on my my GitHub account. But that's largely a result of um, working on on Melpa, um, which I've been doing since I think it was about two thousand and twelve. Um, it, it got to the point where. Uh, I decided I wanted to help people who were submitting code to us to um, to make their code better, uh, and while one way of doing that was to just tell them, well, you might want to go away and think about this or that, um, uh, another approach was to just quickly open a pull request and send them the changes that I thought should be made. So as a result of that, I've ended up with all sorts of forks of other people's repositories and um, I, it's not worth the time to to clear out all of those hundreds of, of repositories now.
0: Well, we're, and we're going to dig into uh, so, some of the things that you've learned from reading and, and contributing to all this Emacs Lisp a little bit later on, but before we get into that uh, you, you were just telling me how you actually came into Emacs from Vim or, or VI. Uh, the, what was it like when you were getting started? How long have you been using Emacs? What's your story like?
1: Yeah, so um, at the at the end of the last century, I was um, using Vim um, a- among various editors, and I didn't really have any any strong religious views on uh, on what editor I should be using. And then uh, at some point, I I think. I, I must have read something about um, about Emacs and about how you could um, customize it so extensively. And, and back then there was no Vim script, uh, as far as I'm aware. And uh, heavily customizing your Vim wasn't a thing back around 2000.
0: It was frowned uh, on because customizing was an Emacs thing. <laughs> yeah, but, but also yeah,
1: one of the reasons I liked Vim at the time was it was very... Um, Slim and um, lightweight, efficient. Uh, to me, it was a very different type of tool, and mm-hmm. um, uh, the the Emacs aesthetic is a little bit different. But uh, but nonetheless, uh, I I jumped into to using Emacs and just gathered a few little bits of configuration from from here and there that I copied and pasted. But mostly, didn't really do. Very much other than enable Viper mode, so that I could keep using my uh, my Vi skills.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And um, it turned out that I, I kept using Viper mode for about ten years or so. I only really stopped using it in in 2010. And I, I wrote a blog article at some point um, professing the belief that uh, the the best thing about um, one of the good things about Emacs was that um, it could be Vim, <laughs> um, so you you really didn't have to choose whether you um, used Vi or um, or Emacs. You could have both of them at the same time, and um, I think I, I made a conscious decision then to change um, from using the the VI bindings to um, to just the regular Emacs key bindings, largely when I started to write more Elisp, because I kind of figured, if most people are using their Emacs in the Emacs way, I'm not really going to be able to write code that's useful to them, um, or as useful as possible, without understanding how they use Emacs. Mm-hmm. And, uh, there are still arguments to be made that the the VI modal editing style is a little bit more efficient but for me i don't find that i'm that my my output is limited by the speed at which i can use the editor usually i'm limited by how long it takes me to think about things and, and whether i'm doing the right thing in the first place um, and and so i have to admit that i'm I have a little bit of imposter syndrome around uh, Emacs, because I am not one of these people who has thought very deeply about these micro-optimizations, about saving keystrokes here and there, because for the most part, I I don't really care very much. I'll still use the mouse um, from time to time to move the point, um, which I feel I should be embarrassed about, uh, but I'm I'm admitting it here in front of everybody. going to wear that uh, <laughs> that badge with pride, but for me it's not really a, a big issue
0: that's totally all right for the long t- for as longest time I turned off you know all the little bits of decoration that we say the mm-hmm. training wheels for for newbies, but when you're an experienced Emacs user, you want every bit of screen reel estate that you can get yeah. and I was like no, actually I'm going to turn the menu mode back on because uh, <laughs> then I, I can see interesting things that people have added to the menus. So it's, it's okay to do newbie-ish things.
1: <laughs> yes, exactly.
0: Yeah. And you mentioned, yeah, um, well, you mentioned a, a bunch of interesting things, including that shift from VI bindings to Emacs bindings because you were writing more Emacs Lisp. What were mm. some of the early customizations that got you into using Emacs Lisp and, and tweaking Emacs?
1: That's a very good question. Um, I think that I probably didn't really do much to to heavily customize my Emacs, uh, you know, other than bits and pieces for um, switching buffers or um, that kind of thing. I, I, I don't think I did much to heavily customize it until I started working with Rails around 2005, 2006, mm-hmm. and then there was quite a uh, an extensive... Um, Rails mode then for for Emacs and I I got a little bit involved in um, contributing to that and and thereafter ended up um, working a bit on Rinari um, which was pretty much its cut down successor i um, still the, the maintainer of that and. Um, Hamel mode because that was relevant to the the Hamil views that I was using in my Rails apps. I became the maintainer of that and, um, over time. And um, yeah, I I think it's, yeah. So it was probably about 2005 or 2006 when I moved from being just um, a a keen casual user to to an active author of Elisp and um, Member of the elisping community, I guess.
0: So it was because you were using stuff for work that maybe didn't quite fit what you wanted them to do, or you wanted to, to be able to take advantage of this, this you know, this shortcut or feature or whatever. And so you ended up writing that, and you uh, eventually ended up just maintaining it and helping all these other people out along the way. So.
1: Yeah, exactly. I seem to have a soft spot for becoming. Um, Maintainer of other people's code, and keep getting yeah. invited onto repositories and given commit access. Um, so, I mean, according to the list on, on Melper at the moment, I've got about 36 packages there under my GitHub account, but there are probably four or five others that I'm either the sole maintainer for or a co maintainer. Um, mm-hmm. I'm a co maintainer of things like um, Haskell mode, um, Ledger mode as well. Um, yeah. Yeah. Various bits and pieces.
0: Well, people often find the, you know, packaging and maintenance process intimidating. So, it, it, like the way that you f- feel a bit of an imposter syndrome when it comes to micro optimizations in Emacs. People think, oh my goodness, you know, sharing stuff and being responsible for it. That sounds like work. Is it a lot of work?
1: <laughs> um, <laughs> It's it's not as bad as you think. I mean, it, it's easy to forget now um, just how inconvenient it was a few years ago um, to use other people's Elisp and and share it with people and get it out there. You know, you could publish stuff on the Emacs wiki, um, you know, but mostly code was shared by people copying it into their own configuration. You know, and I, I look back through the history of of my uh my emacs configuration and and for a long time i was using code that was copied into it you know in a site list subdirectory and i i went through all sorts of um, phases then you know once git became relatively widely used, I was able to convert a, a lot of those into Git submodules, modules um, so that they could be pulled in and, and periodically updated. And then, well, I tried um, lget for a while as well to try and keep the um, the third-party code in my config up-to-date. Um, but there was just really a, a step change then when, um, when Phil Hegelberg um, Adapted package.el to um, to allow multiple repositories. You know, I I have a note, and uh, was it, it was um, yeah, like uh, around February two thousand and ten that was, and uh, I I immediately started using Phil's package archive because prior to that, there'd only been um, Tom Trumi's original Elper archive and it wasn't very convenient I think to get code into there at the time but this idea that you could have any number of sources out there and be able to easily install elisp from it was kind of revolutionary to me. I, I looked at that and, um, and thought yes, this is the way of the future. Um, I'm going to support this, I'm going to promote it, I'm going to do what I can to make sure that this is how people um, get Elisp onto their computers because it makes sense to me. So I, I went to a lot of trouble then um, rounding up various um, bits of code that I was using and packaging them up and putting them on on Marmalade. Um, and, uh, yeah, it was, it was really a concerted effort then to get everything um, that I'd imported into my configuration out so that it could instead be in packages that could... Could be installed, and um, and I think then once I saw um, Donald had had started off um, Melpa, it was in its very early stages. Um, but I, I saw that, and and the the basic model of it then was um, fairly similar to that used by Homebrew, the um, uh, Mac OS okay. package manager. Um, in that there were recipes that would um, describe how to build these, these these things, but it was it was kind of like a server-side version of uh, of homebrew. So the recipes would be applied on the Malpa server, and then what would come out would be nice, shiny little packages that you could could install. And uh, I really liked the the idea of that because I, I I'd had a some friction dealing with uh, with marmalade. Um, and, uh, I, and I kind of liked the the Melpa model uh, more mm-hmm. for my purposes um, so i uh, I went all in on that and and the rest is history but uh, you know I, I think there were maybe um, 30 or 40 packages um, that, that donald had recipes for then in those in the early days and now we're up to I think over 2002 yeah yeah 2200 or so. Yeah. And uh, over six million package downloads there um, since we started. So I'm, I'm really happy that, that people have responded so well to it. Um, it's, uh, it does continue to take uh, up a lot of my time, but compared to a lot of things that you could do in the open source world, it's, um, it's something that's um, very visible, and it's obviously appreciated by the people who use it.
0: For sure. Yeah. I remember those days of, you know, kind of going through the Emacs wiki and hoping you could find something that fits and it copying, mm-hmm. you know, maybe this really long Emacs list file, but then you would never remember to go back and update it and all you know, mess, and maybe somebody else is messing around with that file, we don't know. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I think most of my, practically all of the code that I use now is either in packages or packages that I'm getting from Git and downloading anyway, but uh, mm-hmm. they're already... All neatly bundled up that way. Yeah. And every time I look at list packages, it's like Christmas. So you know, all those new packages that you and other folks are putting in there are really, really awesome. Yeah.
1: I I mean, I think help has been quite, quite good for the um, the community. And you know, when when I was first adding packages to to Marmalade, I was often finding. an author's code uh, and then discovering that it wasn't um, compatible with the uh, the package.el conventions um, and so then you would have to fix these packages up and upload them to Marmalade but then you weren't the original author and if the original author put out another release you wouldn't necessarily know about it um, and the author wouldn't know that that his code was, was not formatted correctly um, I mean, it might just be that, that that was the early days and nobody really cared too much about whether their code was available in, in package form. But um, but one of the things I really like about the MELPA model is that since we're building the packages directly from the upstream source, if the if the author doesn't have code that's in the right format, then it's not going to be a valid package. So, so part of the process of getting code into MELPA is making sure that it is well packaged um, and that's the, this reviewing process then that's part of, of getting packages into Melpa. I think is a good thing for the, the community. Um, and I, I probably go a little bit overboard in terms of, of reviewing code that comes in and, and nitpicking and making, <laughs> making suggestions. Um, but I mean so, some of it will be in uh, a degree of OCD on my part. Um, but a lot of it is in just a few lines typed into a, a GitHub um, comment box, you can transfer quite a bit of, of useful information, I think, and um, give people things to think about, and you know, even if it's just like, well, you know, you've, got a, you've provided a, a toggle function there, but have you thought about turning that into a minor mode? That would be mm. the usual way to do this, and blah blah. Yeah. Um, so I mean, it's it's interesting for me to have that that discourse with with hundreds of different yeah. authors, and uh, and it's it's more often the case now as well that it's the authors coming directly um, to us, hoping to get their code into Melpa, and I I think that reflects well on how the whole um, package. Um, scene has progressed from from just those few years ago.
0: Yeah, and it's it's super easy. We just you know fork the Malper repository, wait until like all these thousands of files get downloaded, and then. Copy someone else's definition and just replace the GitHub URL, and that's it. And and then we get this lovely yeah. uh, GitHub notification that someone named Steve Purcell has dropped in with lo- all these detailed comments about uh, how to make the code better. Because you don't just you know you don't just do the oh it has to have this package header and version dependencies and whatever. But you also give style guidelines, um, style guidance, and that's very helpful. What are some of the things that you've learned from just reading all this Emacs Lisp code and maybe, you know, three or five tips that could help people write better Emacs Lisp?
1: Um, Well, first of all, I personally consider it essential to use um, Um, FlyCheck. You know you're you're getting so much feedback about the the code right there in the buffer, um, that you can get otherwise in, in Emacs, but but not quite so conveniently. So if, so if one example is um, uh, it's not very hard to make the the doc strings in the code compliant with the um, with the E conventions, and you can you can do your Meta X check doc and and it will interactively take you through your Elisp code and suggest changes that you might want to make to your um, to your doc strings. But CheckDoc, um, the, the feedback from Check, CheckDoc is available to you via FlyCheck if you have that enabled, uh, as well as just general um, guidelines about uh, the mandatory um, leading and trailing lines in the, the file that, um, that package.el cares about so much. Um, So I I think uh, that's quite helpful um, as an author. I just recently um, started work on uh, FlyCheck package, which gives uh, package-specific feedback about the code. So um, Sebastian, who wrote FlyCheck, just fairly recently made it possible to, um, uh, to write checkers for Flycheck, which um, <laughs> uh, which are not um, backed by uh, by a separate process, but instead just by Elisp code. Ah. Um, so so it used to be that uh, you'd have a, a background checker, something like JS Hint, uh, if you're coding in JavaScript, um, and Flycheck would run that for you, just like FlyMake used to do in the in the bad old days. And um, and it would gather up the the feedback and present it to you in the buffer. But uh, the, there are um, there are all sorts of use cases as well for just programmatically writing some some checkers, but using the the fly check infrastructure to report them in a convenient way in the buffer to um, to the authors. So. Uh, so I did this then with uh, flycheck package, and it will tell you things like if you've um, declared a dependency on a package which doesn't exist, or, or uh, which doesn't have, um, or where you've put in a version that's uh, that's not installable, or perhaps where you're um, uh, depending on the incorrect version of CLlib um, so if you have a package dependency, it should always be on CLLib 0.5 at the moment, even though you find that there's a CLLib 1.0 in in Emacs. So there are some little little gotchas here. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, but this is really part of an effort um, on my part to automate myself out of Melper a little bit because it, it does take quite a lot of time. And I, I figure if I can provide ways for people to be getting some of this useful feedback um, before they get to the stage of, of submitting the code um, mm-hmm. through to me then then that would be helpful so so I'd like to have um, I'd like to take the, the checking parts out of FlyCheck package, turn them into a, a package lint um, package of its own and use that to automatically check and provide feedback um, on, on code that's submitted through to us so that I have a little bit less to do <laughs> that's, uh, that's that's the long term plan. Until then, I'll be reading all the code that comes in. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, um, uh, that's that's the Emacs way, right? Write a uh, write a set of functions that basically do what you do. <laughs> yes, exactly, yeah.
1: exactly. <laughs> exactly. And and so I've been a little bit slow on the uptake. I've been doing this yeah. for a couple of years now without um without that occurring to me that maybe I should do that. Um, well, but but no, I mean in in terms of the the things that I see in the in the e-list that comes through to me there there's such a wide range of um, things that I provide feedback on. I, I'm not going to say faults or, or errors because uh, a lot of it is is um, open to debate. But is uh, there a yeah.
0: is, is there a package that or a or a couple of packages that you that stood out in your memory as being particularly beautifully written that people could learn from?
1: Um, well I think there are some people who who when they write code um, they go all in and um, they they don't mess about they make sure everything is perfectly documented and, and really take pride in getting everything right so flycheck would be a, a prime example of that um, the the quality of the documentation is um, is just excellent and and so there's um, there's a there's a definite connection between um, people who stay up to date with what's going on in the world of, of Elisp and the um, latest developments in, in the Emacs core and the quality of the code that comes out.
0: Mhm I see and so yeah. if you know if if people are reading all this code and or keeping up with the uh, you know the developments like um testing and uh mm-hmm. and even behavior behavior driven tests and um then the code reflects that quality. So if you if you finally get this package lint sorted out, and you have this automated Steve uh, kind of giving people the basic feedback, then uh, I guess that frees up more time for you to chase down package maintainers and get them to finally declare something is semi-stable enough to make it into a um, MELPA stable <laughs> or something like that. Because there's such a yeah. discrepancy right now.
1: Well, yeah. So. <sighs> Um, Melper Stable is a little bit of a sticking point really because it's it's something that was um, widely requested um, and that, that Donald and I thought we could do um, but that in practice um, has some, some difficulties. You know, we, um, uh, we don't really use Melper Stable ourselves Um, So, so that means it's not getting all of the care that it it
0: needs. Would Um, you mind if I just run? I had to let my stepdaughter into the door. (laughs) No, it'll be fine. About that, you were home super early.
1: <laughs> Not a problem.
0: Okay, uh, so Melfa Stable is something that you aren't really using as much, so it doesn't get no. So exactly. Content. So so um,
1: Donald, M- Milky Postman, and, and myself, we we don't use that archive at all for ourselves. So it's it's there by popular demand, um, but one of the issues is that um, if if you have a package that is in melpa stable because it's been tagged but it depends on another package that hasn't mm. been tagged then that that package won't be in melpa stable and so if you if you had hoped to install those packages just from melpa stable you're out of luck
0: okay so uh so that's um, that's basically if yeah. someone cares strongly about Melpa Stable becoming much more accepted. So, for example, on the event page for this Hangout, Aldrich says, "You know, this, you know, Melpa Stable will help with a lot of the versioning issues." Mm-hmm. Then, one approach you could take is basically do what Steve did and chase after all these package maintainers, <laughs> so that we can, get, yeah. uh, we can get things tagged and put in.
1: That that would certainly be a helpful thing, and I, I think there are some um, some of the version control systems that we haven't yet implemented. Um, Tag detection in um, on Melpa stable, so uh, I'm not sure whether uh, whether we can detect tags in Bazaar repositories. Uh, you know, so so none of those will have um, none of the packages that use um, that system will be in Melpa stable. And similarly with the Emacs wiki, um, mm-hmm. nothing from the Emacs wiki is um, is in Melpa stable at all, and, and that can be a bit of a problem. I don't think this means that melpa-stable is useless because um, in the latest versions of Emacs you can pin packages to certain repositories, so so if people really care about having just the stable version of a package, whatever that means, um, they can go in there and make sure that um, that their Emacs will install that only from Melpa Stable while allowing other packages to come from other sources that they have available. But uh, for, for my own personal usage, I just use the regular Melpa for everything. And um, I, I may be an outlier, um, but I really haven't experienced any significant breakage. Um, I think... Um, Some people like to get their environments set up and um, and then not touch them once they're working well uh, and so uh, Melpa might not be the best choice for those those people that for example in the, the closure world there was a, a, a painful period where um, where cider uh, was was becoming more mature but there was a, a lot of work being done and, and to to maintain a working Configuration. If you were a Clojure programmer, <laughs> um, while using Melpa was honestly quite a challenge. <laughs>
0: yeah,
1: so, so, that, so there can be problems there where um, where a particular area of the ecosystem undergoes rapid change. But for the most part, with day-to-day updates, I don't really notice any any breakage. And um, uh, and because I keep up to date with with what's going on elsewhere, if something isn't working, then I can usually figure out why. I think um, one area that we haven't really explored much yet is just this: uh, the idea of perhaps keeping a uh, a note locally of, of um, packages that have worked successfully for you uh, and being able to roll back updates. Mm-hmm. You know, this is something that you could do separately from, um, from package.el. You could just... Note down what packages you had before an update, install the update but don't delete the old packages. The new packages will then be loaded preferentially um, but if you find that there are problems, you should be able to just delete the new ones, restart your Emacs and and go back to where you were. Uh, so there, there may be different workflows like that that would, uh, would help if, if people do feel they need uh, a backstop to... Uh, to protect them from from these horrible, scary straight you know um, straight from from Git packages.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: I um, again, it. it's not something I'm really motivated to um to explore for myself because because <laughs> it works it, for you the, because it works for me. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I've... I'm I'm re- I'm slowly getting to the habit of upgrading packages every so often because people keep adding interesting new features to them. So, for example, uh, this uh, what is that Ace Window added this background option that I didn't know about and wasn't my my previous version. So lately, I've been using Paradox to uh, list my packages instead because it makes upgrading in the background pretty easy. And it's nice to see all these tweaks coming out as as packages too.
1: Yeah, there's a lot of stuff that's grown up uh, around it.
0: Yeah. So since you're exposed to so many packages, what are some of your favorite packages for improving your productivity, or you know, kind of setting Emacs up the way you like? What you know, what are some of the highlights for you?
1: Um, there's a few things I. Uh... I really you can like
0: config if you like. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
1: exactly. I've, I've got a big config. Why don't we just go through the whole thing? <laughs> I, I'm quite surprised, honestly, at the uh, the popularity of my configuration because I I didn't really put it out there with the intention that lots of people would use it. Um, I just thought, well, maybe people will find snippets there that they would like to steal. Um, but at this stage, there seemed to be, I think it was something like 880 forks of it and, and 1,500 stars. Um, <laughs> I, I don't know who these people are. You know, and <laughs> I, I haven't made any effort, really, to make a, a configuration that will be um, ideal for a large number of people. But if people are finding it helpful, then I'm, I'm very happy and and flattered
0: I forgot to check have you have you been getting pull requests from other people for your config
1: yes so <laughs> I, I do get occasional pull requests most of them accidental um, but um, uh, and then immediately closed again afterwards but, uh, you know people have really taken this configuration and um, uh, and mangled it to, <laughs> to um, for their own purposes, far beyond what I would have expected. So um, I had Chen Bin, uh, who's Redguard Two on um, uh, on GitHub, he uh, took the configuration up and forked it a long time ago, and and added a whole bunch of stuff. Um, I think some of it aimed at um, uh, Chinese users as well, which is is not a a demographic I I cater to explicitly. Um, yeah, it's So it's, it's nice to see this work being done, but in terms of direct pull requests to me, sometimes I will have um, uh, submissions where somebody has perhaps added support for a language which I don't use, and I will decline these pull requests because I, it's my personal configuration, um, and um, I don't want to... Implicitly promise to people that that part of it will work if it's something that I never ever use. Yeah, yeah I'm not really sense. willing to take on um, maintenance of that. So I, yeah. I just encourage people to to run with their own forks in in that case. And yeah. it's not too hard to add an extra um, init. Dot yeah. el file for for a particular topic and and to plug it into what I've got there. And I think that's what most people do. But I. I don't code a lot of C or C++ these days. For example, um, there's a lot of basic stuff that I'm sure I could easily put in there to support that. I haven't done it because
0: you're not using it. Really yet, so yeah. And
1: and so this uh, this might be why it has proven popular. Perhaps people can just see how to extend it, and they like some of the basic defaults. And I, I I don't really know, but. Mm-hmm.
0: Anyway, <laughs> I, I do find that GitHub is, you know, uh, has really made it a lot easier for people to you know, take advantage of other people's code or comment and and uh, share their changes and whatever. So Michael Fullerman has a question here. Um, can you say something about the various Emacs development subcultures? Like GitHub feels different from Emacs-devel, et etc., et cetera, and what they say about the state of Emacs development? <laughs> Since
1: you're active in, in a lot of places, I guess. Yeah, it's. Um, I am not personally directly involved in the core Emacs um, development. I, I understand that things are changing and opening up a little bit there in, in recent times, and there are some very, um, very good people who are active both on GitHub and in that community who would probably be better to ask.
0: Did I lose you? I, I lost some kind of audio. Hang on a second
1: programmer, but he's, oh, he's involved in in the core, core development a lot.
0: Mm-hmm. That's cool. Um, but I, I distracted you from a, from a previous mm-hmm. question about your favorite packages. <laughs> So, we'll, get, we'll ask somebody else the Emacs Devel culture question. And in the meantime, you can tell us based on your extensive survey of a lot of different packages and also the ones that you use, you've got a fairly extensive Emacs configuration. What are the highlights for you? Or maybe what are the underappreciated ones that yeah. you wish people would yeah, use?
1: you have to forgive me, the audio is breaking up a little bit. So.
0: Mm. Okay. Are we back in sync? Can you hear me? I'm going to lower my resolution uh, video bandwidth so that it's focused on you because... OK, so are we back? Yes,
1: that's much better.
0: OK, all right, here we go. It could
1: well be my kids hogging the uh, the broadband.
0: (laughs) QoS them! OK, favorite packages or underappreciated yeah, so ones you want people to come back uh, to check out?
1: I'm still having a hard time with the, the audio here, I'm afraid.
0: Oh, no. Uh, OK. Oh, there. I, I see your screen, and I seem to be hearing yeah. you fine.
1: There we go. I think the uh, the connection is just cutting in and out. So um, one of the things that I love um, is uh, uh, something I wrote um, called uh, iBuffer VC. Um, so iBuffer is just uh, a built-in tool for listing buffers. Um, currently open in your your Emacs but you can provide custom um, methods of grouping them so um, you can group them by major mode for example some of these some of that functionality is built into it But I, I wrote a, um, a grouping method uh, which uses the uh, the root of the buffers mm-hmm. associated um, version control repository. So effectively, if you work on um, things that are almost always in um, Git or other version control repositories, they will be grouped together in here, and so that means that if I want to um, just... If I've stopped working uh, on a couple of projects yeah. for the day, then I can just go through and mark them here um, and kill oh. them, and, and there I've tidied up all of my buffers. So nice. I, I quite like that. Um, nice. and the um if you have other uh buffers like the um uh, magit uh status windows for those buffers those will tend to be in that group as well because there is uh, the default directory for those buffers is uh, is also inside the uh, the git repository
0: so that's, really convenient. that's
1: that's quite a handy little little trick and although i don't use projectile um there is. Uh, I, I, I recently wrote a version of this for Projectile users, which will do the same thing, so that um, it, it will group your your buffers by the Projectile root directory.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, I, I find that handy, and I, it's just a little something that I use every day. Yeah,
0: um,
1: sure. Uh, if I go across to to here, one of the other things. Um, uh, is um, this whole line. This was a a long-standing package that that went out of maintenance many years ago, uh, written by Joe Casadonte, if if my uh, memory serves correctly. Um, But what what this does is it lets you um, wrap up certain commands that would normally operate on a region Mm-hmm. And it changes them so that uh, if you um, call them without a region active, it will instead operate on the current line.
0: Yeah.
1: Right. so I can do... If I just do meta W um, would normally act on a region um, and then yank it, it actually acted on the, uh, on the line instead there. And so, yeah. similarly, if, if I want to do uh, meta2, meta w, I've pasted, uh, I've copied and pasted the two lines there, yeah. using the prefix to mark the number of lines. And so, uh, you know, it's the same for control w, uh, and yank it back in, also operates on the line by default. And I just, I find this utterly indispensable because I don't really get along with the the default um, behavior of, of those commands. Yeah. Excellent. Uh, almost all of the copying and pasting that I do, it tends to be line-wise.
0: Hmm. Um, I should, I'll, I'll be sure to check that out. I saw that in your config, but seeing seeing it actually being used and hearing you explain how useful it is to to, to you, huh? So yeah. Difference.
1: And and you can take other commands as well. That um, that all, so, it's, so this behavior is built in. Um, you can just uh, if I go to um, here. We go. So, um, whole line or region mode um, will enable that behavior that uh, that we just saw. Um, but, uh, but you can also apply it to other functions that you found el- elsewhere. Um, so, I, I guess, uh, I guess, like normally, if, if I do. Um, that was the the comment dwim the meta semicolon um, if I don't really like very much this behavior I would uh, I should probably get around to changing that to use uh, to work by a whole line or region um, <laughs> because then I would get this effect instead yeah
0: yeah yeah huh. um,
1: so that's so that's a useful little tip that um, that I use quite a lot um, yeah. and then uh, yeah, so okay, if I do this and I go um, Control X Control B for iBuffer, you see that it opened in a full yeah. frame. Um, that's thanks to the full frame um, module. And if I do Q now, it'll go back to the previous window configuration. Mm-hmm. So that's that's really useful. I use that for um, uh, for Magit. Uh, as well, I always like my uh, maggot status to be full screen, but then when I close it, I want to go back. Mm. Um, so that that's easily done. Um, and I think if I go to in here, uh, right, full frame. Here we go. So um, you basically just say when when this command is called, make it full frame mm-hmm. and when this command is called um, in that window um, yeah. then restore the previous configuration. So this is applicable to quite a number of packages where there's a standard way of, of exiting them and I, I find that quite helpful
0: because huh. it, it
1: just avoids a few little rebalancing of windows Yeah
0: um,
1: I, I think there are certain tasks that I always want to be full screen so
0: that's that is very helpful I often find myself maybe you know starting to slowly get the hang of using winner mode but then there's still the extra control x1 to a uh, delete all the other windows that full frame will take up take care of quite nicely yeah
1: exactly um, and winner mode I use a lot uh, and this of course plays um, quite nicely with it um, too um,
0: from the, uh, the magic status that you uh, flashed briefly, I'm guessing you're still, you know, you're, you're you're continuously tweaking your config is what it seems like. <laughs>
1: uh, yeah, I always have a few local changes sitting around that I haven't um, pushed elsewhere. Um, sometimes it's just little to-dos and, and that kind of thing. But yeah, from time to time I play around with, with other packages and I have local configurations for some of these mm-hmm. things um, that I don't really actively use, so from time to time I'll dip in and, and try um, Twittering mode again. Um, and I have tried mu for e um, for, for email, but I keep going back to, um, to my operating systems mail program instead. Mm-hmm. I'm not really super hardcore in terms of trying to use Emacs for everything. Um, I tend to prefer using a different terminal. A separate terminal window, for the most part. Um, so yeah, you know, I have I have things on my to do list, like you know, investigate um, e shell, because uh, I see some some cool stuff um, people doing some cool stuff with that, but I've I've not really put in the time to um, to figure out what benefits I, I might get from that. Um,
0: That's alright. Yeah.
1: And then, I mean, other stuff that I find pretty much essential is um, uh, while I have a configuration for... um, Um, While I have a configuration for autocomplete with Mm -hmm. the the pop-ups, I honestly don't really use it very much. Um, I I often just use... um, hippie expand. Yes. Um, and so, so I have a slightly um, uh, inconsistent view of um, of auto completion. You know, I I like the idea of there being these drop down menu things that understand a lot about the context, but for for the most part, um, particularly coming from um, from Vim, I always used the uh, Control N and Control P. And there to to expand the, the the current symbol to the next similar-looking one or the previous similar-looking one. And and um, by the time you're doing things the Emacs way and you have a lot of, of buffers open at the same time, there's a very good chance that the word that you want to expand will be in one of those. <laughs> so, uh, you know, r- rather than worrying too much about... Um, about that last twenty percent of getting exactly the right options appearing in the autocomplete drop down. I often tend to just take the eighty percent approach and and hit my meta slash. Yeah. Um, uh, and so in in the past I've I've written plugins for hippie expand, so I have a hippie expand slime package somewhere. Um, it's not really a very fun system to uh, to extend compared to company or autocomplete, but uh, yeah. I do find that very useful.
0: Yeah, it's it's amazing how much even just diabrev, dynamic brev, will, uh, yeah. will cover because you've already typed the darn thing somewhere. Uh,
1: exactly, exactly. And, and and hippie expand, I, I just see as a uh, diabrev on yeah, steroids, stereotype. really. Yeah, yeah. You can pretty much just rebind the key to, to mm-hmm. hippie expand and get the same behavior with a few little extras.
0: Yeah, I re- I added a yeah snippet to my hippie expand recently, so I'm trying to get the hang of it. <laughs>
1: Yeah, that's also a package that I um, revisit from time to time but then finally conclude that that I'm not going to use it or or take the time to, to customize it.
0: I started using it for uh snippets that rec- that include a little bit of emacs Lisp to transform stuff, So mm-hmm. that's why it's it's come in handy for me uh since you know, and and that um and snippets with with different fields that I need to fill in, but it you know it's it's one of those those little things that you gotta look for opportunities to use it and then you gotta get a hang of using it and so forth so
1: yeah
0: one of our uh, listeners oh go ahead no okay. Uh- one of our listeners is curious about um, whether you work in multiple development environments, or is it just you know this one computer? And if one had to deal with different environments, like it, how does how would Melba deal with different Emacs versions?
1: Um. How would Melpa deal with thing? different like, Emacs like, versions? Like there are yeah, some, so, some
0: packages that would work with Emacs 24.4 but don't work on Emacs 24, 23. Yeah, so if,
1: if you're using different Emacs versions uh, in different places, then you're always going to have some issues with some packages being installable there mm-hmm. uh, on one machine but not on, on another. But you can work around that. So my configuration does still work on um, Emacs 23.2 and 3, I think, but the um, the functionality of it degrades, hopefully mm-hmm. gracefully, I haven't fired it up on that version for a little while, and the way I do that is, if um, I go back to here, um, Uh, There's a, a good example, right? So I've, I've got a couple of helper functions uh, called require package and maybe require package. Um, so, so you can write your configuration such that um, you can have some packages that don't work on uh, on the current Emacs, but the, the, the startup will continue. So, um, you know, if you had some code here, you could say like when. Maybe require yeah, package. Yeah. Blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Um, the, the the problem comes if you try to um, take a a full directory full of um, uh, Emacs configuration and pre-installed packages and move that to somewhere else and use it with a different version of of Emacs because then when package initialize fires up, it will try to initialize even the packages that are, are that have um, too high a version requirements to work on the current emacs that, that's when you could come into problems so so my approach with with my config is um, to uh, I mean, it, 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 these require package and maybe require package functions um, download and install the packages on demand. So if I wanted to take this config to a machine which had, say, Emacs 23, um, I would just make sure that I didn't take the helper directory.
0: Yeah, I, I switched my my config to use use package for uh, similar reasons because it you can tell it to just download stuff for you, and that means you don't check your packages in.
1: Yeah, I, I haven't looked too much into um, into how, with use package, you handle the case where you have little um, snippets of configuration that are really related to two different packages. Mm. Uh, it's not clear to me where. Um, That's it, my daughter singing in the background. That's <laughs> awesome. <laughs> um, yes. It, there were cases where it didn't seem clear to me where I should put the configuration, so I, I've thought from time to time about reworking this config to use use Package. Um, yeah. But I'm not sure I would necessarily understand this any better if I did.
0: No, you already got a system <laughs> that works for you with Require Package and Afterload and all these other uh, things that you've set up. So that's excellent.
1: Yeah, it's it's pretty much good enough for me, at least. Yeah.
0: And I really like that your config has a couple of comments sprinkled through it to to help uh, help people understand. Because you're right, a lot of people read your config. Um, Aldrich on the on the event page had another question about literate programming. Like, if you've considered it, if you have any thoughts about it. Apparently, CoffeeScript now does literate programming too. And of course, there's this, you know a lot of people using Org for uh, for literate programming and and even config. Any thoughts on that?
1: Um. Yeah, I, I, I like what I've seen people do with, um, with literate programming and I think it's an interesting discipline um, for forcing yourself to organize your thoughts and your code in a particular way but it's, it's not something I find myself strongly drawn to so um, so I like it in, in the same way that um, I like um, ballet <laughs> but i'm not necessarily going to go out and uh, and train to do that.
0: <laughs> that's that's fine. I mean, you know again your your config is already very readable as it is, so it works yeah. wonderfully for that purpose. In fact, i, I,
1: I yeah. yeah, i mean i i think there's a strong argument for um uh, for code being reasonably self-explanatory. So, you know, my day-to-day work i strongly prefer rewriting code in order to make it intention more obvious than um, than writing some documentation or or comments trying to explain um, what it's doing. I think what that misses out is um, the opportunity to write about the rationale for doing things a certain way. Mm. Um,
0: You, You mentioned earlier that your bottleneck isn't really the editor efficiency or probably even typing speed it's 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 thinking about things and you know maybe figuring out what something means or how to solve it do you have any tips on how you're working on getting you know getting better at that maybe with Emacs help or or just skills you're picking up
1: um well i think you know having a good a good system to um, Organise your life is is an important part of that. So you know, to, to the extent that I'm using um, Org um, to implement a, a getting things done system, um, Emacs is helping me with that. But um, I think it's all too easy to get obsessed with um, your productivity at the computer. When, when really if you just go for a walk and you have a good idea, you might potentially save yourself a month of, of, um, <laughs> of effort, um, you know, furiously coding away in the wrong direction. So I, I think that's what I, what I mean about it, and I'm, I'm not really a, um, a slave to, um, to efficiency, I'd, I'd rather um, take time off and away from the computer to, to think
0: that makes perfect sense that, but, and that's uh, actually it's it's a struggle that that a lot of people deal with as well cuz sometimes it's it's easy to just focus on you know either working on the problem itself or getting distracted and configuring emacs and you know and and, and trying to improve your productivity that way but stepping away from it from time to time <laughs> yeah
1: yeah absolutely
0: how do you like you, you mentioned um, before this chat started that you you know you, you're joking about how you might be spending too much time on Emacs, but how do you find that that balance right? You, you contribute a lot to Emacs. How do you, how do you walk the fine line between doing lots of good stuff and yak shaving? <laughs>
1: Um, I probably am not the person to, um, to ask because I'm not sure I've figured out that balance for myself. Um, you know, I will, I will find myself um, submitting code to, to somebody else's repository for uh, an Emacs mode, which I am never going to use for myself. Um, and, and so I'm not sure that that is a good use of my time, either at the time that I'm doing it um, or afterwards or in the longer term um, I for some of these things I just can't help myself <laughs>
0: well, <laughs> so, I really so appreciate I, your I, generous contribution to the Emacs community and there are a lot of other people whom this helps so at least from that you know, from that perspective I, I, think, yeah. I think it's yeah. worthwhile keeping it doing
1: tangible reward there
0: <laughs> yeah. and thank you also for yeah. the time that you've um, sorry you were about to say something
1: no that's fine go ahead
0: uh, I was just about to, to thank you for for being part of this Emacs chat. It's a great way for for people to get to know the person who sends them all these wonderful pull requests, um, and uh, and I look forward to seeing more packages and tags and uh, and um, and ideas from you going forward. What, what's the best place to, for people to find you?
1: Um, I'm over on uh, on Twitter as uh, Sanity Inc. Um, for some reason, my uh, my handle there doesn't match up with my handle on GitHub, but so I'm, I'm Purcell on GitHub, Sanity Inc on, on Twitter, and sanityinc.com is my blog.
0: And that's Sanity. But I haven't Inc. written
1: anything yeah. there for a while. Yeah.
0: we'll get you writing soon enough. You know. <laughs> exactly.
1: That's yes. so another thing of, on know, the list.
0: Yeah, you're writing lots of uh, GitHub patches, so that's fine. Um, and for p- folks who are listening, that's Sanity Inc. S-A-N-I-T-Y-I-N-C, not I-N-K. Uh, dot com and also on uh, on Twitter it's sanity inc in i n c thank you again Steve um, and uh, if you're listening in thanks for uh, thanks for being part of this as well see you around and uh, thanks thank for your you next chat bye okay so stop the podcast